Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for tuning in. This is Greg Soden. Winnipeg, Manitoba may not be on the radar of many people as the home of absolutely amazing underground rock bands, but I assure you it is. With bands like Propagandy, The Guess Who, and The Weaker Thans achieving international acclaim, as well as a stunning array of bands like Kittens, The Bonaduchis, Painted Thin, Red Fisher, Malfaction, Gorilla Gorilla, as well as record labels like G7 Welcoming Committee and Sister Records, Winnipeg's musical history in rock music is a must for any music fan to dive into. On today's episode, we dive into the history of underground rock in Winnipeg with the writer Sheldon Burney. Sheldon Burney is a dad, writer, hockey player in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. His books include the novel Down in the Flood, the short story collection Where the Pavement Turns to Sand, and the topic of conversation on this episode, the nonfiction Missing Like Teeth, an oral history of Winnipeg underground rock from 1990 to 2001. You can find Sheldon Burney's work at his Linktree username at sburney, and you can find Missing Like Teeth on e-reader stores for $5, and it's absolutely wonderful. I had a blast hanging out with Sheldon Burney talking about Winnipeg and rock and roll, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Sheldon Burney, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here, Sheldon. I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners out there so they know a little bit about you and your work. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Sheldon Burney. I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, I'm a reporter by trade, I guess, a community journalist uh, for the Free Press Community Review, which is a free weekly publication in Winnipeg that uh, that covers the community stuff that the daily doesn't uh, doesn't quite touch on. Um, a number of years ago, I guess eight years ago now, I wrote a book about Winnipeg's underground music scene, which is called Missing Like Teeth, an oral history of Winnipeg's underground rock from 1990 to 2001. Uh, and uh, that book was a great experience that we're going to we're going to dig into it uh, into it here. Yeah. I'm so excited. Um, Sheldon, how did you get interested in general, just like in writing? How did this grip you and take you down this professional path? That goes way back to like an interest when I was a kid and just writing stories, you know, basically, you know, ripping off or rewriting, you know, like uh, Monty Python sketches or whatever, you know, Um, and I just kept doing it. Uh, because that's what you do sometimes. I guess I had some early encouragement or found, you know, early on outlets that were directed towards like youth writing and youth art in Canada. Uh, there was a couple or one publication in particular called Into Print that uh, had a mandate to, you know, focus on and publish and give experience to youth. I think like 12 or 14 to 19 years old. Uh, I was around for three or four years before it kind of went under. I think it had some, you know, government was reliant on government funding. Uh, but that got me the experience early on of submitting and getting rejected, but continuing, you know, like not giving up uh, and kind of got into that, uh, into doing that. And uh, from there, just, you know, found opportunities to 
to practice writing, whether it was, you know, on my own or through zines or submitting to literary journals. And then uh, later on, uh, when I went to University of Manitoba, uh, that involved getting inter involved with the uh, community or not the community, the student paper there, the Manitoban. Uh, and then from there, that opened up, you know, that journalism was a way to to maybe make money or to to sort of make money. Uh, and so I would, you know, found myself pursuing those opportunities. And then here we are uh, today. I just keep trying to find ways to do it as that's what I that's what I like to do. Amazing. Well, in the future, you and I, I know we have some plans to chat about some of your novels as well. So we'll get to the uh, the fiction and the create the creative aspect mm -hmm. of um, of literature in the future in future episodes that we're planning on doing. But today we're going to talk a little bit about some nonfiction yeah. um, that you did, like you mentioned, Missing Like Teeth, an oral history of Winnipeg underground rock from 1990 to 2001. I want to know a little bit about your experience with music, kind of set the stage right. here for your context and your burgeoning interest in music and the Winnipeg scene that you came to document later on through this book. Kind of take me back to your origin and entry into this uh, this world. Okay, well, uh, I grew up in northern BC, so a town called Dawson Creek, which is about six hours north uh, west of Edmonton, Alberta. So there wasn't really any sort of, you know, music scene going on there. There's a couple, you know, dudes in every grade who played like, you know, some sort of Nirvana ripoff or Pantera ripoff kind of stuff, <laughs> which is great and fine. But there wasn't any real like no bands would tour there. There was no scene whatsoever. Uh, but coming and spending time in the summers in Manitoba, where my parents are from and my extended family all live, uh, I got introduced to, you know, punk rock music, uh, uh, underground kind of music. Uh, and then from there, you know, found out that, you know, much music, which was like the MTV in Canada, had a late night show for about half an hour on Fridays called The Wedge, which played indie underground videos. And so was able to then realize that there are these bands doing really cool stuff and holy you can you know mail order you can write them a letter and send them a money order for 12 bucks and get the latest cd from the kittens or whatever you know uh and so from there was hooked on uh that this was a thing that was happening it was happening in canada it was happening in the states it was happening in winnipeg which to me was a, a place that i had access to and understood on a, on a on a level you know living close to edmonton i never really spent any time there we'd kind of just drive through it to Manitoba, occasional hockey tournament or or school trip there, but it wasn't a place that I connected with or, or got to know in any meaningful way. Vancouver was, but that was, that's, you know, again, 12, 13 hour drive south uh, and never spent much more than a couple days a year there at the most, you know, either visiting friends, family. So Winnipeg became the place that, you know, I started to find out that there's a band from there. There's these cool bands from there, a band called Kittens, which had a few records on Sonic Onion which were, uh, they're fantastic, a really kind of underappreciated noise rock, I guess you'd kind of call them band. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then, you know, by by dint of, uh, you know, fat records and working in, in kitchens and hanging out with punks and getting to be friends with, you know, kids who like that kind of stuff, uh, discovered this band called Propagandy, which of course were from Winnipeg. And to me, that was like, whoa, there's this band of fat records that is from Winnipeg and they <laughs> appear to be you know skids like me and my pals who sing about hockey and whatever and so from there it was you know by that point they had already put out a couple records and i believe had started their record label which also featured you know the weaker thens and other acts that were connected to them through winnipeg and so 
for me, it became a uh, almost like a mecca of this this kind of stuff that was happening because it was accessible. I could spend time there. I could visualize what they're talking about, where these shows were going on. Uh, so when I got old enough uh, to start attending those shows in the summer, that's that became a, a big thing for me. Amazing. This is great. So this um this book. Oh, so what era are you sort of? This would have been the late nineties, two thousand. I graduated two thousand one, so would have would have came into actually seeing this stuff at the end of it when some these bands were already established. Uh, And then the legend of the bands that came before was what you'd hear about from the older punks or the older you know dudes you're working with or 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 playing music with or or whatever. So there was a lot of legendary kind of status to places like the Albert or the Rendezvous uh, that uh, you know you'd hear from these these guys who were there when it happened, kind of thing. And so in my mind, it built up like a really this was a spot that uh, you know doesn't get the attention of Montreal, say, or or Toronto or Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver's punk scene, of course, in the '90s was also pretty pretty big and pretty cool. Uh, and so, to me, it was like, why why aren't more people talking about Winnipeg? But I mean, that's that's the case no matter what uh, you're talking about. You know, whether it's sports yeah. or culture or whatever. If you're from Winnipeg, you have this kind of attitude that you're overlooked a bit, and that could be a little rightly so, and a little bit maybe just a chip on the shoulder. But to me, it seemed like something had happened here and no one had really documented it. Uh, I guess we'd fast forward to 2011 or 12 or 13 ish. I started writing freelance for vice Canada, which you know, vice had established a Canadian office uh, and were really kind of aggressively trying to cover stories that weren't being covered. Uh, So I kind of got my foot in the door after a lot of pitching uh, there. And at the same time, they also had noisy, which was their music, I don't know what you call it, imprint or magazine online platform. And the same thing, they were establishing a Canadian footprint. And so I quickly was connected with the editor there, Slava Pastic, the infamous Slava. Uh, and uh, he kind of just greenlit a lot of the stuff I was doing. And one of the first things I did for him was, you know, can I just write about this scene in Winnipeg that existed back in the day and, and what its connections were to the music that was happening at that time, I guess about 2014 or 13 or whatever it was. And the the response to that was huge. So I ended up doing a, a number of kind of follow-up pieces with different kind of scenes uh, that had, uh, rather than a, a you know, general overview. And then from those articles, which again, got a lot of shares, a lot of interest in them, finally kind of putting the spotlight on Winnipeg uh, on a national scene. Uh, the folks at uh, Eternal Cavalier, which is was a very small, you know, two-man indie um, book publisher out of somewhere near Toronto that had a, a mandate and a focus on Canadian music writing. Mm. I got in touch with them over Twitter. I was familiar with the books they'd put out They'd put out two or three by that point. Uh, and they said, do you have something? Can you do something large on this subject? And I, of course, uh, naively said, yeah, of course, that'll be easy. <laughs> uh, and so kind of just dove right in. And I you know, had done a bunch of these interviews already, just kind of mapped out how could I cover a, a period of time that seemed to to make sense, you know, um, and uh, and just dove in? Amazing. I love that this kind of started just as a, a series of smaller pieces. Um, how many interviews did you do whenever you were just doing like the smaller articles before it came in ex- uh, like a much larger project? I, you know, I can't exactly recall, but I remember trying to cast a pretty wide net 
Yeah. And, you know, Winnipeg is, is a city, but it's also very small towny. And so I didn't want to like, uh, I mean, you're going to leave someone out, but I wanted to make sure that I felt at least like I was covering the bases that I felt were important or that, you know, I'd always make a point of saying, well, who else should I talk to after talking to someone to see maybe I'd overlook something. And of course I overlook plenty, but that's just, you can't do everything. Right. But probably, you know, at least, at least a half dozen and probably closer to a dozen interviews for each of the pieces. And there was some overlap between them, which is natural in a small scene where people are jumping from band to band or, you know, or playing in like an indie band and like a, a death metal band or whatever, or a grindcore yeah. band or something. Uh, but it it was I was trying to cast a wide net with, of course, the caveat that uh, I probably didn't do. I probably didn't get everyone I should have, but my intention was to to overdo it to make it easy to then pull those pieces together. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned like the small towny feel, like um, something that strikes me so much about reading this book and also knowing some stuff about the Winnipeg music scene that I've come across in the last couple of years is that you have people like Jameel Russell or mm -hmm. John K. Sampson or uh, Jason Tate, who like their, their work branches across different genres and sounds and styles so seamlessly and so effectively that you've got this like really powerful um, group of people over the last couple of decades that can kind of move in and out of different musical worlds. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is uh, speaks to a their versatility as musicians and artists, but also to the fact that uh, if all you're going to do is listen to punk rock and go to punk rock shows, I mean, there's a scene there, but it's it's still Winnipeg, so you're not getting, you know what I mean? Like there's you're going to be not doing a whole lot some nights or some weekends when there's other things happening. You know, you've got a big party in Birds Hill, the Winnipeg Folk Fest, which I mean, if you're a hardcore punk, you're probably, you know, sneering at. But if you're a music lover in general, yeah, whether you're, you tend towards more aggressive or louder music, you're probably going there to check out some artists that otherwise you can't see. So, uh, you know, that lends itself to taking in and listening to uh, a, a wide range of music given that if you want to see music and you're a music lover, that's what you're going to do because you you don't have the ability to just silo yourself off. I mean, you can, but then you're going to be missing out on a whole lot of other things that are happening uh, because of the size and remote location of the city, right? Yeah. Well, okay. So before we dive into the book specifically, <laughs> I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about the collection of venues that would have shows in the all throughout the 90s in this like decade that you've documented kind of tell me a little bit right. about what like the physical spaces were like that you discovered in uh in your conversations but also in your own personal experiences right so a lot of the the primary venues that would be giving not only you know medium size or, or you know bigger underground bands a place to play but also providing locals for a place to play you've got bars like wellington's which was in the basement of the saint charles hotel it's been condemned and boarded up for years i don't know if anything's ever going to go there now next door you had the royal albert which is uh to this day opening and closing and people are trying to make a go of it but it's heyday would have been in the 80s and, and into the 90s uh where you had an owner that was very open to uh to to, to getting local bands on the stage, but also, you know, promoters that were bringing in kind of bigger punk rock bands or, or bands from the States and or bands from the rest of Canada. Uh, so there was an opportunity for local bands to, you know, play on draft night and and, and get, get a taste of the stage, but also to be opening for bands like Green Day or No Effects or whatever. Um, you had uh, kind of more underground venues, which I think were probably closed by the 90s, like the Cauldron and 
uh, you know, various kind of uh, DIY sort of spaces. You had a larger place like the Rendezvous, which is just across the river in St. Boniface, the neighborhood of Winnipeg. All these are a short bus ride or walk from each other in downtown Winnipeg. Yeah. Uh, La Rendezvous was kind of a bigger room. So you'd get uh, once punk kind of started to get bigger and bigger, you had bands playing, uh, headlining there and then, you know, bands, local bands opening for them. Uh, the University of Winnipeg would sometimes put on shows. University of Manitoba, which is way in the south end of town, would would you know host shows. Uh, you also had community centers like the like the the Western Cultural Center, places like yeah. that that would uh, that you could just rent and put on shows. So you had a lot of that at the Broadway Community Center, and even places you know way out in in the the old suburbs, which are now part of Winnipeg proper, to St. James, or uh, you know way up into the Kildonans. You know, kids could rent. The hall there and have their bands play or maybe try to bring one of the the bigger local bands to headline and, and do it so they're most of this action was you know centered around the central part of winnipeg uh, downtown the exchange uh west broadway or osborne village with the rendezvous being in saint b uh but it would you know there's there was lots of opportunities for for kids anyone with a DIY spirit to to get something going at community centers or or some of these underused uh, underused halls and spaces in churches or or the Belgian club out in St Boniface or whatever it might be, so there's lots of opportunity to get that kind of thing going. Fabulous. Well, let's talk a little bit about the book here. So, what does this title mean? Do you missing like teeth? Tell me about the title. So that's uh, pulled directly from a uh, song by the Weaker Thans, "Left and Leaving," where. Uh, the line is my city's still breathing but barely it's true uh through buildings gone missing like teeth in winnipeg uh from the, the downtown winnipeg is full of surface parking lots now and i think you saw a lot of that happening uh before the 90s but in into the 90s there was you know pulling down these old buildings that were kind of you know in, in, in whosoever minds had seen better days uh, or whether maybe they legitimately had a, you know, an issue that it wasn't worth fixing. So they pulled them down and put parking lots in their space, which is a blight upon the whole area to this day. Uh, and so John Kay, you know, he writes brilliantly about uh, local issues in a very poetic sense. Uh, the, the song also, you know, talks about people leaving the city, moving to Montreal, which was a big thing when i first moved to winnipeg i thought it was moving to the big city but everyone from winnipeg was oh they're going to montreal they're gonna go make it mm. in montreal before that it was vancouver the van you know, tons of punks who came up in the 80s ended up moving out to vancouver in the 90s and the people just always are moving away to toronto which you saw also in the uh and the end of the the 90s and early 2000s a bunch of those musicians have since moved back to winnipeg but that was the the pole was to somewhere else right uh, and so I thought that that captured the spirit of, of what was happening. Uh, and, uh, of course, by the time this book came out, most of those bands with a few exceptions, weren't together in that form or, or whatever either. So I felt it pulled it all together. Plus I love that tune. So, yeah, man, it reminds me so much of Buffalo too, where I live mm -hmm. because we, mm -hmm. we have a long history here of pulling down, uh, preservation worthy buildings. Like the city of Buffalo tore down a Frank Lloyd Wright designed <laughs> office building do you know what i mean yeah they, it was like the, the larkin soap company had their headquarters in a building that was designed by architect frank lloyd wright and they tore it down and <laughs> just last week in buffalo a building was torn down that was actually slated for preservation at one point but then got torn down so that makes so much sense to me uh because we have 
tons of surface parking lots too. So it's like so funny, like having visited Winnipeg and then living in Buffalo, seeing the way that those two cities can kind of like be compared in certain ways. It totally. just really yeah. is like so fascinating to think about that connection there for my own life and my own city as well, you know? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the voices represented in the book. I think that I counted in the uh, book that there were 59 voices represented in the book. Um, I may be off if That's I miscounted. Probably but... true. That sounds about right. Uh, yeah. And again, there were some folks I'd interviewed for the uh, for the various uh, articles that uh, maybe the focus was just a little bit past this, so it didn't quite make sense. And again, there's people that I should have tried harder to 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 track down or didn't occur to me till after that it would be easy for me to find them and then there were people who just straight up weren't interested in the project and that's fair enough too they've moved on and you know whatever uh so i you know there's at least a dozen more people that i probably should have should have worked harder at including or 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 cast my net wider and there's definitely some people who would argue there's a few people who i spoke to that maybe uh <laughs> weren't worthy of getting focused on and maybe had inflated their own uh, involvement. And I mean, that just <laughs> happens. And that's, you know, everyone's going to have a, an opinion on that if they were involved in some way back then, but uh, maybe old beefs that uh, got dredged up or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, it was, it was, it was quite fun to speak to all those people because most people were pretty keen to interested for one that someone was interested in talking about that uh, apart from the, the propaganda and weaker thens angle. Uh a lot of these bands, you know, maybe they're still playing music with their friends or maybe they'd stop playing music altogether or were doing something completely different that doesn't get the attention that their their band from the 90s or early 2000s did, you know. So a lot of most folks were pretty happy to to revisit this and uh, and take a little walk down memory lane. So that was that was it was cool. What were your what was your like kind of method like for like going and doing the interviews? You like going to people's houses, going to bars, going to parks, like kind of what, what were you doing? Like, a little kind of what of, was your, yeah, your comfort. A zone? little of everything. At that time I was uh, like working mostly freelance and I had like a contract job with the music magazine stylus, which is a CKUW um, music magazine that in the nineties uh, and into the two thousands, was probably with the exception of you know the weekly uptown magazine the spot for local bands to get you know do their first interview and or whatever and it was an opportunity for for a lot of writers who went on and artists uh who went on to do to do bigger things to get their teeth wet there's a number of free press editors and and writers uh to this day who that's where they started off was in stylus so i was lucky to do that that was not a full-time gig but because of that uh, it afforded me the the time to yeah go meet people at their convenience, uh, go for coffee, go for a beer, meet up with them and chat in a park. Uh, went to a couple people's homes and did a number of interviews over the phone, which nowadays that would be more my bag. I don't have quite the time if I were to ever engage in something like this again. I'm sure most of it would all be over Zoom just for uh, time's sake. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was cool to get to, to, to meet some of these folks or some of them I knew in different capacities over the years and to, to just kind of spend some time uh, in a different capacity and, and talking about some period that meant a lot to them. Right. I see the, uh, the, the chapter seem to be named after maybe some of your favorite songs. Like you have sounds familiar, you have supporting right. cast. So I feel like the chapter or the chapter names stuff that was all kind of meaningful to you from different periods of time. I tried to, you know, pull a theme that was being discussed, you know, like as you're trying to put a chronology together, a narrative of some sort, from this you can't like invent a narrative right so you have to kind of like pull together themes that 
that makes sense. And then from that, yeah, I would try to find a, a lyric or a song title or whatever that, that spoke to that theme that seemed to be dominant of that, that, that chapter or that couple of years or however it ended up being broken, uh, broken down. Nice. You Which got... was fun. You know, <laughs> that's fun oh, for totally, me. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like you had some people that were uh, obviously included their words in the book, but also contributed artifacts too, like Cam Nickel. Uh, he was Todd very keen. Yeah. Todd and Chris people... from Propagandy. Um, it seems like you got like a bunch of artifacts that you included in here too. Tell me about digging up those like old physical things. Uh, that was uh, Cam Nickel uh, is a photographer. There was a few photographers that if you look again, back through Stylus or through the, the records that uh, these bands put out, uh, a few names that kind of pop up over and over again. And he was one of them who was documenting stuff for zines and, and doing all that. And, and just was a guy at the shows with a camera uh, who was just keen to share some of this stuff because I think he, you know, must have a blog that he put some of it up, but again, to, to, to dig up some of these things that maybe no one had seen in 10 or 15, 20 years, I think for him was a, a, a thrill, a bit of interest. Uh, uh, Chris and Todd, uh, Chris more so, uh, I want to say hoards a lot of stuff, but holds on to a lot of things, whether it's uh, properly archived or not. I think he's got a box that's just full of of old show posters and old things that he just held on to over the years, and was I think happy to uh, uh, from with a little prodding to to dig into that and <laughs> and uh, and get me some of that stuff, which was which was a thrill for me too to see some of these, you know, kind of water damaged or somewhat stained old pieces of uh, a poster and, and handbills from 20, 20, 30 years ago was, uh, that was fun. That was cool. I'm, I'm yeah, happy that so many people were willing to to share. My favorite one in there is uh, the, the no effects 1992 shows in October of 1992 where propaganda opened and then eventually famously went on to get yeah, signed yeah. to the record label owned by Fat Mike Burkett from no effects. Um, so that's kind of like a, a moment here for me that yeah, really connects yeah. to my fandom and music um, from from back in the day, seeing that moment where it's like, ah, this is where those two worlds collided and then yeah. led to the rise of like of th that record label that went on to be so yeah. iconic fat records, you know, because so intertwined. Yeah. Um, what was it like digging through? Uh, I know Stylus was involved. You got some stuff from Stylus, Stylus and CKUW. What were their archives like? Stylus, uh, so I would, they have a tiny office in the, uh, I assume it's still there, in like the student union part of the University of Winnipeg, which is right downtown on the border of the West End and downtown in Winnipeg. Uh, and they have had, at least, and I'm pretty sure they still do, copies of every issue that they've put out since 1989. And wow. so on days when I would have office hours and have to be in there, and there might not be a whole lot to do, you know, I've already got everything uploaded or edited or whatnot, I would just flip through for my own interest. And that's where, you know, the part of this idea for this came about was finding that first propaganda interview or seeing the first weaker thens interview before they'd even put out fallow or whatever, right? Like discovering that uh, stuff that wasn't online because no one had taken the time to digitize it because it's always a staff of two or something at that place. Right. Yeah. And there's not funds to do it or whatever uh, was just fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, wanting to be able to dig into that and share some of that uh, with a wider audience was, was great. And I mean, uh, good on CKW for uh, 
for seeing the historic value in that stuff and kind of keeping a space for people to to engage with uh, with creativity and and local history and politics and and all that open and on the air and uh, I mean the University of Manitoba station does a similar kind of kind of thing but just the uh, the physical space of, of CKW and Stylus at the U of, a, of W right downtown kind of adjacent to where a lot of this was going on is uh, uh, kind of invaluable for 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 that scene anyway. What were some of your favorite interviews that you did? Like, what are some standout memories right. from that time that you were like, just really blew you away and that you really hold as like a cherished memory in your own experience? I mean, uh, you know, the, the, two, the two big kind of bands that I keep going back to, of course, were our propaganda and the weaker ends. And I mean, as a kid, those guys seemed like, like on a level of like famous rock stars. Right. But then you realize, oh, they're actually just these dudes. Uh, but they were all, all the guys I talked to from those groups were were very generous with their time and supportive of the project. And it really uh, I mean, I'd met and interviewed them by then anyway, in different capacities. So it wasn't like it was a, a revelation. But looking back uh, at it, uh, those conversations were really open and fun. And uh, and I just really value the, you know, how how willing they were to share their time and these stories and kind of support a silly little project like this. Uh, I felt that was, that was really cool and still remains cool to me to this day. So those guys Fantastic. were great, but yeah. And then, you know, digging around and, and connecting with, uh, uh, there's a couple of guys, there's Ted Sim, who I don't know how much he's, he's not really like a chatter, uh, chatty type Kath, chatty Kathy, but he played drums in, in uh, SNFU in the 80s and has been involved in a million other kind of projects. He was one of those guys who moved to Vancouver in the 90s and moved back. And I got to know him through his band Trousermouth, which are kind of like a uh, shock punk kind of. They're, they're a funny band. Uh, but I got to know them, uh, you know, years and years ago. And so sitting down with Ted and again, he's not he's not just, you know, he's not sitting there waxing poetic about the old days, but he'd offered like a nice little insight here and there about something and just be, it's just a, a cool dude to be able to, to sit and chat with or run into at a punk show and, and chat with and think, Oh yeah, that guy is on one of those SNFU records. It's so good. And, you know, played hundreds and hundreds of shows around the world with them, but it's just the most unassuming little guy you'd ever, uh, you'd ever think of. Right. So getting to meet folks like that and get to know them on a personal level. Uh, it was cool about the project, but also cool about, living in Winnipeg, because that's just what uh, what you do if you're going out to shows and meeting people and social in that way, right? Yeah. Well, okay. So tell me a little bit about the the way you broke down the chapters. I see you have like some time periods, right? You've got right. a chapter about 1990 to 1992. You've got a chapter about 1993 to 1995. Kind of how did you delineate the time periods for the organization structure? Again, that kind of just came out of, uh, you know, doing a bunch of the interviews, sort of seeing where the scene or the bands were at at that time and noticing some kind of trends. You see, like some bands were kind of on the rise. No one had really, you know, just kind of trying to map out trends. You've got, you know, the first propaganda record comes out in what, 93. And so that had kind of been the culmination of, you know, bands like Red Fisher touring a whole bunch and, and kind of establishing these uh, um uh, connections for for the bands that came after them to to tour and to uh, and to do stuff. So you ended up seeing, you know, uh, uh, what is it, a rising tide lifts all boats or whatever. You know, it's you've, if it wasn't for the work of this band, this couldn't have happened. And so things kind of moved along a course. Uh, and then, of course, once Propaganda gets an album out that's in, on an international label, it puts a little uh, um, 
spotlight on Winnipeg. You're starting to see some other, that whole label and that whole kind of wave of punk rock is getting bigger. So bands are touring, bands are given more opportunity to, to open and then to go on tour themselves. So it all kind of built and it just was really just gut instinct on this seems like a chunk of time that thematically works together. Seems like they've made another step here. Oh, there's another wave of bands coming in after. And it was, there's, there was no science to any of it. I did, did not have any real plan going in. It was a matter of just trying to identify stuff that worked together. And then. So that brings up a good point. You're, I kind of am thinking about the methodology of going about making an oral history project for something like this. And I know that in the past, you've casually mentioned to me that maybe there would be some things that you would do differently about if you were going into a project like this now, mm -hmm. what were some like methodology, um, you know, quirks and some things that you discovered about the process that maybe you'd have been like, Oh man, I really wish I would have done this way, that well, way, stuff like that. I'm so curious. Yeah. I would describe the methodology that I methodology that I used with this as a complete lack of methodology, <laughs> completely not knowing what I was doing. You know, I read I don't know how many oral histories of other bands or scenes, and being like fucking just naive and uh, headstrong and uh, stubborn, I figured that this will be a cinch, and it was not a cinch. Uh, but I just spent lots and lots and lots of time just trying to make it work. At the same time, at the University of Winnipeg, there was, I don't know how well established they were at the time, but they were emerging and now are established as an oral history center mm. where I know someone who has gone on to work there. And if I had, uh, I also was on a bit of a deadline. So I was like, I, got, I can and I'm going to get this done quick in this yeah. year or whatever. Uh if I had had no deadline and time was not a factor and it was just a project that I was going to work on for years and make the best possible, <laughs> I would have leaned on them for their knowledge and their uh, uh, methodology and their yeah. tips and the the equipment that they had, to, you know, to properly uh, um, archive the interviews and all that stuff. All this stuff was on my phone, you know, which most of it is gone or lost at this point. But they are a great resource that I wish I had had the time and the uh, the brains, I guess, to go and ask for help for them. I, again, it would have probably drawn the project out much longer than I actually had to, to work with. But it would have in the end, been a much more complete project and uh, one that would have been more accessible to, I don't know if anyone is going to do any more research on this subject, but it would have had all those conversations archived, saved, uh, cross-indexed and accessible. And so if anyone is going to take one of these projects on, I would see what kind of local institution offers that kind of support and uh, whether it's the local library or university branch or something, because um, again, it would not have been this project, but it probably would have uh, been a better <laughs> project if yeah. I had asked for some help instead of just stupidly trying to do everything myself the yeah, way I, I thought mean, it could be done. Because like, as you know, I mean, on my other podcast, I do, the, I do oh, a music mm -hmm. podcast too, and I release the interviews like online and they're all downloadable as MP3s. So like, I feel 
decent about their archival storage yeah. and i was like man i wish sheldon would have had every single one of these recordings yeah. done and then <laughs> saved and then in like a you know some kind of google drive where he can still access them today because then i emailed you I was like hey do you still have this yeah. interview recorded and you're like oh <laughs> so i'm like i do, might do you, yeah do you have any of this stuff i you know and i know i've got the my transcripts somewhere yeah in some, either if it's on the hard drive of my old desktop computer or on like a, a memory drive or they're not on Google Drive because I've checked there. Uh, I'm just looking at my voice memo. I think I saved like one or two of my favorite of the interviews. Nice. I've got I've got the Jord interview. I've got John K. Sampson, Biff Naked, Jason, which I assume is Jason Tate. No, yeah. that's from years later. So that's not that. Anyway. <laughs> Wow. I've got a handful of the originals there. Derek Riel, I think. Uh, so I, I did have the foresight to save a couple of them. And I don't know why I did not save all of them. I guess it was just space. My old phone probably was running out of space or something. And maybe I had I thought I had them backed up onto iTunes when you used to be able to do that. And yeah, just again, a complete lack of methodology or foresight or skill uh, yeah. was involved in this, which again, for the project like this, I've, you know, I tell myself this anyway, uh, the end result is a product much like most of the music that came out of there. It's flawed and unpolished and has more heart than brains in it. Uh, and so is somewhat reflective of 90% of what, of the art that came out of that scene with a couple, you know, a couple exceptions of stuff that rose above, but uh, that's not exactly an excuse for my poor methodology and, you know, Again, uh, yeah, but that's what I tell myself. <laughs> Amazing. Well, definitely find the ones that you still have. Dig into those hard drives. See if you can find those transcripts because you never know, man. Maybe somebody at the library would be willing to like store these things mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, and just, you know, I, I encourage you. Um, as a person who is interested in the history of rock music myself, I would definitely encourage you to figure out a way to dig those things <laughs> out. Someday, maybe when you're like on a week off from work or whatever, be like, all right, I'm going to find those dang things today. Anyway, um, you know what I'm super curious about? A lot of people know the, you know, the names you mentioned, Propagandy, Weaker Thans. What are some of your other favorites of? Uh, of music from the era that you document in the book, like maybe some overlooked records that people could go back and like listen to um, if they want to see kind of like the heart and soul of the scene. That's like just below the surface that mm -hmm. escaped uh, the local scene and kind of what, what was like just below the surface bubbling up um, happening. Like that people may not have, uh, they may not remember now to this day. Right. I mean, I always, uh, I mentioned kittens before, uh, yeah. and you can find their stuff on Apple, but not all the records, the night danger EP, which is the last EP they put out. It's doesn't exist online to my knowledge anymore. Huh. And that records it's like four or five songs, but it's awesome. It's fantastic. Uh, they're a band that I absolutely love. They're a lot, you know, kind of like an amphetamine reptile kind of vibe to them. And, you know, detractors might say, you know, that's kind of derivative of that scene, but I don't think so. I think it's doing enough of its own. Uh, it's got its own angle, especially the like Bazooka and the Hustler record. Like that is a start to finish fantastic record. Tiger Comet also, but Bazooka just has, they kind of lean into the idiosyncrasies and weirdness and kind of twangy Western spaghetti Western kind of vibe. Uh, I love the, those records. Absolutely. Um, the Bonaduchis were a great band that, Ooh, uh, you so know, good. they've, 
you know, uh, 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 the democracy of sleep and K's for Catherine. Those records are awesome. They're really kind of like kind of emo-y, but you know, I mean, maybe you'd put that under emo, Midwestern kind of emo, but uh, also kind of doing their own thing as well. And uh, I think those records are are amazing and should be uh, uh, should be celebrated. Um, they put out some stuff. They came back, you know, reunited a few times over the years and put out neat stuff. And uh, um, uh, the folks in those bands are still active in, you know, their own fun little projects or whatnot. But uh, uh, I really like those two Bonaducci's records as well. Um, there's some heavier stuff, of course, like, you know, you have Malefaction that put out a number of, you know, if you're into that kind of death metal grind core kind of stuff, like their records stand up with a lot of stuff that was coming out from Canada. And then of course they had a, a really cool political kind of messaging. The singer from that Travis Tomchuk is like a university professor in like labor history or whatnot. And a super interesting dude, uh, you know, uh, yeah yeah he's 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 very interesting in and of himself uh so yeah there's those those are some that stick out right away i love the i spy record i mean that band was from yeah. regina but you know moved to winnipeg and of course todd kowalski long-running member of propaganda now but uh their stuff i really like because it is so raw and you kind of see where he ends up going as a musician but you know those records are are as raw as they come and i i love them man some of my favorite ones too is like um elliot uh ben oh Sigurdsson. yeah yeah ellie yeah. was great uh band from atlantis yeah that was also another really good one uh that, doug mcclain like yes. dude i feel like doug mcclain needs to get a little bit of a, a love here tell me a little bit about like what you know about doug mcclain because he was in so many important bands like painted thin is amazing yeah band from atlantis bonajuti's paperbacks right yeah he is a very unassuming you know, guy who is a, just a fantastic writer. And that's the, the thing with his, I mean, musically, all those bands he was in are very, they write catchy songs. They got rocking songs. They're very talented musically, but his lyrics are just, I remember an early interview with where I first heard of them with the weaker thens. it was either in exclaim or in stylus back in like 98 or 99. I think it was before left and leaving came out. Mm. Might've been exclaim. And someone was like, well, who's, you know, who do you listen to? Or who, who should we listen to in Winnipeg? Something I'm paraphrasing, but he uh, pointed out the Bonaducci's and he said something along the lines of that the Bonaducci should have a statue at the ledge of them instead of whoever else the statues all go up around the legislature, something to that effect. And, you know, you can, when you listen to those early Bonaducci's records, uh, democracy of sleep in particular i think john k has a, like a uh, he sings a little backup on one or two of those songs but you can mm -hmm. see an influence in you know from the propaganda john k songs to fallow and then especially the jump to left and leaving yeah. very similar you know uh focus on the detail to bring out the uh the greater metaphor or whatever and they're, they're very similar writers in those ways and i i, I don't think i'm putting words in in John's mouth at all. But I, I think especially at that age, uh, Doug would have been a writer that he looked up to on the local scene uh, and, and likely was influenced by. Yeah. Well, and then you got another total legend in the book, Biff Naked. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was it like interviewing Biff Naked? She's great. She is another person, very generous with her time, very positive, uh, just a really like, like a ball of positivity. She's probably the nicest like lady, you know, out of that scene, but is, you know, rose to, become a, a, a rock star of her own you know with music videos on much music and whatnot and 
uh, again, was very generous with her time and spoke very uh, candidly about, you know, the influence of the of the the late 80s, in her case, particularly early 90s scene had on her and her ability to kind of, you know, her band Gorilla Gorilla was one that moved out to Vancouver with the other punks and then quickly, I think, broke up as soon as they hit the hit the coast or whatever, yeah. or shortly thereafter. Um uh, but yeah, she's great. And, you know, she had, she sang on the, that one SNFU tune from the, from the early nineties there, uh, the mid nineties. And yeah, she's done so much cool stuff, but is, is not shy about, you know, bringing it back to, uh, you know, getting her started in Winnipeg. I think she grew up in Dauphin originally or something like that, and then moved to to the city as a teen. And yeah, yeah, she's cool. Amazing. Well, you know, something that really stands out to me is that, so in October, 2021, I was fortunate enough to go to Winnipeg. Right. And going there and walking the streets and seeing the Royal Albert and seeing the Burton Cummings Theater and seeing the Park Theater and uh, the, you know, the West End Cultural Center, I feel like my understanding of this book is so much deeper because I've actually been on those streets. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Even if only for like four days. Um, Tell me a little bit about like, you know, connecting the book to the city and like how if somebody like goes to Winnipeg, what this might, you know, come to mean as opposed to like just like reading it from like you right. know, Australia or something. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, uh, you know, I feel like the city is its own character because it's got, you know, these. Uh, it is what it is, right? It's like an isolated, uh, relatively isolated nowadays with the Internet. It's a different world. But back in the day, you know, it's six to eight hours from Minneapolis. Uh, you know, it's like 12 hours to Thunder Bay, you know, to drive yeah. to Toronto is an ordeal. Uh, and then the next, you know, driving to Calgary is 12 hours, which isn't hard to do because it's a straight line, but it's 12 hours, right? So uh, it's an isolated place. It's uh, It's got some, it's got its history uh, and it's got character to it as well. So I felt like, you know, the songs of the weaker then is going back to to him or Greg McPherson, who's you know mentioned a little bit in the book. Oh, uh, some of their McPherson. tunes, with the, with, you know, they're singing about place, and place is very important, whether it's you know as a as a theme or a character in and of itself, or a, a serious place stands in for the factors that uh, you know lead to the characters making this decision or being unable to achieve this or or whatnot. And I think it. Uh, uh, Winnipeg acts as both a limiting factor and also as a catalyst to a lot of the creativity of these bands, right? You know, uh, whether it's the desire to get out and do something or the desire to prove uh, prove themselves in a in a small pool or, or whatnot. So it uh, it's its own character. And I mean, you don't. I I would hope that you don't have to be here to get it, but I understand that it certainly helps if you know exactly, you know, kind of what you're dealing with when you're walking downtown at night between these one bar and the next bar. Or, and to yeah. do that when it's minus 40 uh, is a different thing, yeah. you know, stumbling out of the Albert uh, on a Thursday when it's, yeah, minus 40 in February to to try to catch the last bus home is a, uh, it's a test of will <laughs> and, uh, and uh, possibly smarts, but uh, yeah. What is your, I know you, there'll probably be some repetition from the list that you've or the records that you've already mentioned, but do you have a top 10 or ish top 10 ish all time favorite Winnipeg records as of late 2023? You don't have to limit it to the, the decade that the book oh, covers. Well, that would be difficult, but I could try to go off the top of my head. I would, <laughs> I would, 
I put, of course, those, uh, you know, Bazooka and the Hustler, though some would say Tiger Comet is better for kittens. Uh, you're, I'm going to put Left and Leaving from the Weaker Thens, uh, as well as John K. Sampson's most recent, like, solo record, uh, 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 not provincial. Oh, I'm blanking Winter on Wheat? The name. Winter Wheat is so good. So good. Uh, so good. Uh, oh, it'd be hard to pick one of Greg McPherson's, though I love his first one, Balanced on a Pin, a lot. Okay. It's, uh is that the one with uh, company store on it nope nope before Man, I'm that obsessed with that song company store is great but uh that balanced on a pin is it's uh he's still doing really like kind of softer using his softer voice he's not gone full rock and roll oh uh, man or, he's intense yeah yeah but i like it because he's not quite yeah that's a good record that if and it, that's one that doesn't exist uh online either uh, I'd go with Christine Fellow's Two Little Birds, which I, again, you can't find online, but it's so good. Okay. Um, uh, Propaganda. I can't really, which one am I going to pick? That's fucking, uh, <laughs> uh I get a, a probably it's either supporting cast or, uh, um, uh, today's empires. So I mean, I course, can give you both of them. You're well, still only up to eight. Yeah. Yeah, but then you know you don't want to you don't want to like there's so much other good shit in here that I'm yeah, just okay, end I'm... up leaving out. Uh, you know, <laughs> you want to throw some Burton Cummings in there because that guy's okay. a goddamn legend. But which one do you do solo? I kind of like his solo stuff more than the Guess Who. I don't know if uh, if that's bad to say, but uh, you know, fucking my own way to rock is a rocking album, <laughs> and the cover alone is worth putting it on that list. Uh, and I'm leaving out all the Roots artists and stuff. There's so many good like roots americana type bands you know but you probably want to put like andrew neville and the poor choices first record on there i think it's self-titled um scott nolan's got so many good records as well uh i think it's uh no bourbon and bad radio that's got uh broken uh, uh bad liver and a broken heart on it which was covered by hayes carl and has got a life of its own uh out there in the world but that's a winnipeg songwriter who's also fantastic, but in a, of a completely different world. And I'm probably missing a bunch of good stuff. Oh, in that. Of course I didn't are. even get the Bonaducci's. Got to have Democracy Asleep in the mix there somewhere. Anyway, that's Amazing. a poor that's a poor list off the top of my head, but uh, that's a, a good starting point for anyone. I can hear our uh, our friend Sam Thompson from Witch Police Radio screaming a list at me through the internet right now. <laughs> well, he's <laughs> um, got his own he's got his own tastes that sometimes overlap with mine, but uh, he's got his own. She totally. likes ska and that sort of thing. So that's a whole, yeah. Um, I'm not even going to get into that. You, <laughs> and I didn't did. mention any hip hop because that's not really my scene, but you know, those farm fresh records are awesome though. I guess they're more of a Brandon band, but there's a amazing. lot, there's lots of good stuff. It, it's so amazing too, that this such an isolated place has such a thriving and vibrant amount of music that has come out of it. It's so inspiring. Um, a question that I do want to ask you is you dedicate the book to a person named Jonah. Yeah. I wonder if oh, you can man. tell me a little, tell me a Jonah story. So uh, my buddy Jonah was a guy who I worked with at custom culture, uh, which was like a head shop in Osborne village back in the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was like a music, he put on shows. And they were, for the most part, indie, weird kind of stuff. But he'd bring in bands from Montreal and put them up at like a house show. And he was just a, he had, a, his company was called Ghost Town Manitoba. And he would put on, yeah, again, a, a, you know, book a show at the Pyramid one day and then put on like a house concert the next, whatever he could, he could make happen. But he was just like the sweetest, like most unassuming guy who's, 
would always, you know, it was hard to kind of hear what he was, what he was, what he was getting at because he talked like he's just the most <laughs> sweetest, most unassuming dude. Uh, but he'd be out there taping up his posters himself. Minus forty, just was so in love and committed to music that he just would make things happen. Whether he took a loss on the show or or did well, it didn't really matter. He'd be disappointed if you know it didn't go great. And yeah, I know. I do. I don't know. That we just that's, the weather was but whatever. Like he, but he would just keep doing it, and he was he was amazing uh, at that. But then he uh, he got. Uh, I don't want to say the wrong, he got brain cancer basically and died super yeah. young and it came on really quick and kind of took, you know, I remember the last voicemail I had where he was wanted to go get soup and I just missed his call and I'll get a hold of him in a couple of weeks or something. And then he was dead. So I was uh, still think about that guy quite a bit. And I know the UM, uh, U of M uh, radio station, he was a volunteer there. I think he had his own a radio show there at ghost town, Manitoba, but you know, also help catalog the CDs and do all that. And they named the, uh, they've got a, a really cool studio for live performance and for recording that bands can book and, and rent uh, at the at the radio station there at the U of M. And I believe that that uh, is named in his honor, named after him after he passed away because he was just such a, a beauty. He was a real, a real sweet dude. Fabulous. Well, what a great tribute too, uh, to for a for the book dedication as well. I'm glad that we got to uh, to chat about Yona a little bit. So, Sheldon, uh, tell listeners out there how to track down this uh-huh. book <laughs> if they would like to read it in some way. The best way is going to be like I don't use Kindle because I just don't. Um, I don't know, but that's the only way to do it. <laughs> so you got to have uh, either a Kindle or a re- e-reader of some kind. Uh, occasionally I think there's 500 copies of this ended up getting run over a couple, couple printings and they're all gone. Like the, the eternal cavalier closed up shop a number of years ago. And, uh, so occasionally they pop up on Amazon used and people are, you know, putting a price tag of over a hundred bucks or something on these. And I don't know if people are buying them or not, but that's the only way to do it. I, you know, I hope one day. Not that I would want to do the work to like fix all my, you know, omissions or or uh, or whatever, yeah, spelling quibbles, this and that in the book. But I wouldn't. I'd love to see it have uh, a secondary print run, even if it was limited one day. But I don't know if that's going to happen. But at this point, you can get it off Amazon, Kindle, and uh, that's nice. going to be your best bet. Well, I got to give a special shout out to my friend Jamie Fougere in Winnipeg who oh, drove, yeah. who tracked down a copy in a bookstore in a rural town. On and all, you know that's which yeah that is far away from Winnipeg. I know his uh, wife's family have a cabin nearby, so he may have just secured it and go. Oh, we're going up there in two weeks. Like I'm getting your last copy, but yeah, good for him. That guy's a beauty in and that's of himself. This. That is this copy right here. Jamie <laughs> went there got it and mailed it to me and That's i amazing. could not believe he's like you of all people with your obsession with winnipeg music <laughs> have to have this book so huge shout out to jamie for procuring me the very last copy that for sale the last store. one that was uh that's the last one and if there's any for sale now i would uh if you happen to cross one in a used bookstore then buy it <laughs> you can amazing. resell it on amazon if nothing else well, Sheldon Bernie, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you about your book, Missing Like Teeth, an oral history of Winnipeg underground rock from 1990 to 2001. 
I have loved our conversation. I've loved being your pal for the last three yeah, years uh, in our various collaborations. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you about your novels on some forthcoming episodes that we'll be doing in the coming months. Thank you so much for being here and joining me and geeking out about the <laughs> specialness of the Winnipeg underground music scene. It's been such a pleasure. My pleasure, man. It's all mine. <laughs> <laughs>